You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's now open the Word of God to Philippians chapter 1, which is our scripture reading this morning. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, And I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. And I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Whatever happens, 
conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for Him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This morning our text is the truth of God's Word as it's been summarized and confessed by the church in question and answer 42 of the Hutterberg Catechism, which you can find in Lord's Day 16. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Our death is not a payment for our sins, but it puts an end to sin and is an entrance into eternal life. Beloved congregation, Christ Jesus, the broader culture in which we live doesn't really seem to know what to do when it comes to death. You can see this in the way that our culture tries to take the edge off of the subject. For instance, Canadians, and I think we're all included here, don't really like to say that someone died. To many ears, that sounds crass and it sounds sharp. So instead, we say that someone passed away. And though we still see a few funerals, we begin to see more and more memorial services, celebrations of life, and the like. In years gone by, cemeteries were located next to churches and never very far from sight. By contrast, today we bury our dead in discreetly located memorial gardens, which often have pleasant-sounding names. No matter how hard we try to avoid it or take its edge off, death is still there. Death still confronts us regularly with all its ugliness. Whenever a loved one dies, the pain is there. And it's real. We go to funerals and we mourn because someone we care about is gone. But God also uses funerals to remind us of something important. It's something that we probably don't like to think about. But the fact is, all of us, every single person here, someday, is going to die. Unless the Lord Jesus comes back first, our bodies are going to be put in a grave. And some of us will go sooner than others, but we will all die. How do you feel about that? Does death scare you? Some people, also people who are believers, have a fear of death. Perhaps they're afraid that it will hurt, or they're afraid because they're uncertain about what will happen afterwards. What about you? That's a question that each of us needs to consider very carefully. 
Perhaps right now you're distracted by all kinds of other things going on in your life. You're too busy living to think about death. But brothers and sisters, we're speaking here about things that matter for eternity. And perhaps we think that death is something in our distant future. Well, not to be morbid, but it could be that God has other plans for you. So you need to think about these important questions now, today. A few moments ago, we read from the first chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. And as you may know, when Paul wrote this epistle, he was in prison. You probably noticed his mention of chains. Now, prisons today can be rough places, but in the Greco-Roman world, prisons were much more so. Paul was there, he was in chains, and those chains were very uncomfortable. They would sometimes cut your flesh right down to the bone. The prison didn't provide food. Hopefully you would have friends who would come and provide food for you. And prisons certainly didn't have adequate facilities for sanitation. And if all that weren't bad enough, it looked like he might die very soon. Because of his faith and his apostolic calling, Paul was facing death. Those who were in positions of authority, they hated believers, they hated Christians, and they wanted them dead. But since Paul was a believer, he did not fear death. This was because he knew about another death, the death of Christ, his Savior. Paul knew that because Christ died for him, Death was different for him. He didn't have to be afraid of death. Christ's death brought him comfort when he was faced with his own death, when he was thinking about his own death. The Heidelberg Catechism leads us in the same direction in question answer 42. It asks the question, if Christ died for us, why do we still have to die? The question assumes the reality of death. Death is there. The answer teaches us that there is purpose and meaning in our death. The answer shows us, and this is our theme, that Christ's death brings comfort as we think of our own death. Closely following what the Bible says, the Catechism says that Jesus Christ makes our death into a good thing. Because of what Christ did on Golgotha, we don't have to be afraid when we think about dying. Instead, we can have comfort. We can have peace and joy in our hearts because we know that dying, as tragic as it is, particularly for those left behind, for us, it will be a good thing. For us, who belong both in life and death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, First thing the Catechism says in question and answer 42 is that our death is not a payment for our sins. And isn't that exactly what the Bible teaches us? You know, we could go into hell and we could spend an eternity there and we would not even begin to make the payment God demands for our sins. That's why people go to hell for eternity. And if that is true, 
how would the comparatively simple act of a heart stopping be able to pay for our sins and meet that divine demand for justice? Only the death of Jesus Christ, our Savior, can do that. Nobody and nothing else can pay this enormous debt that each of us owes to a holy God. Consider what Scripture says in Hebrews 2, verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because He suffered death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. Adam had introduced sin and death into this world with his disobedience. But Jesus, the second Adam, He came and He restored life when He suffered death. He took the penalty of sin. He made payment so that all who believe would not have to. Hebrews 9, 26-28 teaches us the same thing. That Christ was sacrificed, sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. He was on the cross that one day Good Friday. And there made payment for many. And who were those many people? Well, Ephesians 5.25 tells us that Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Christ made the payment for us, beloved brothers and sisters. He paid in full. And we're called to simply believe this great truth. And that's why in his letter to the Philippians, while Paul is in his prison cell, what is he doing? He is directing the Philippians' faith entirely to Christ. Because Christ is also the one in whom he has hope and comfort. Christ is the only one who can give hope and comfort for this life and for the life to come. And that's why Paul can write so much about joy in this letter. He's about to die. Or he thinks he's about to die. And he keeps on going on and on about joy over and over again. In one form or another, joy appears 14 times in this short epistle. A couple of times, he encourages the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. He himself did the same. He could have that sort of outlook because of Christ. Because he knew Christ, his Savior. And who wouldn't want that same outlook when facing death? Having the same faith in the same Savior, we too can and will have the same comfort and, and yes, even joy when we're faced with our own death. So loved ones, when we read those words in the catechism that our death is not a payment for our sins, read those words and fix your eyes on Jesus, whose death is in fact the payment for our sins. This morning, God is once again calling us to freshly lay hold of Christ in faith. Believe the Gospel. We have a Savior who died for us and in so doing took the curse of sin that we deserved. Brothers and sisters, you can't be indifferent to this message of good news. Listen to Hebrews 2, verses 1-3. to 
We must pay careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? We have a great salvation. And you cannot sit still in the river of indifference because its current runs in one direction, towards the falls, down. And that's a place we don't want to be. So thus says the Lord this morning, here's your Savior. Believe in Him, the One who made the payment. And know for certain that your sins have been paid for in full. And so then, if our, if our death is not a payment for our sins, then what is it? Why do we have to die? Catechism teaches us that death puts an end to sin and is an entrance into eternal life. You notice what Paul said in verses 21 to 24 of Philippians 1. Fairly well-known words. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. If it was up to him, Paul wouldn't know what to do. He's ambivalent about the prospect of death. But one thing he does know, and he knows it for certain, going to be with Christ would be the best thing that could happen to him. Paul had no fear. Now, Paul doesn't go into a lot of detail right here as to why he thinks this way, but you know, we can look in other places in the New Testament to figure that out. For instance, in Romans 7. Verse 24 of that chapter, Paul says, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now here in Romans 7, Paul is working through the fact that he is a sinner. That was his state as long as he lived. He was a redeemed sinner. He was a justified sinner. But a sinner just the same. We're the same way. As long as our heart is beating, sin and its effects is there in our lives. But after we take our last breath, sin is gone. Gone. When our bodies are dead, sin will no longer have any control over us. Through the power of Jesus Christ, we will be totally free at last, from sin. Done with it forever. You know, brothers and sisters, that is good news. Something to look forward to with eager longing. Something to hope for. Because who among us doesn't get tired of the effects of sin in our lives and that battle with the old nature? We should look forward to the day that God calls us home to Himself. The prospect is there, the glorious prospect of being totally free from sin. That's a thought that can give you hope, 
comfort for the future and encourage you now for the present. There's one other reason why God speaks through Paul and tells us that dying would be a good thing. It's the fact that death is a doorway. A doorway to eternal life. He says that death is gain. What would he gain? What would we gain? Well, he tells us in verse 23 that his departure would mean being with Christ. Already in this life, we get a a foretaste of eternal life, but with death, we enter into it fully. The fullness of God's presence. The fullness of His right hand, Psalm 16 says. Through death, we come into a life that has, or through, through death, we come into a life that has nothing to do with death. After we take our last breath, we'll never have anything to do with death ever again. And so for Christians, our death is not an end, but really a beginning. It's something, the beginning of something more beautiful than you can imagine. As we read in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9, quoting the Old Testament, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. And so death for believers does not have the final say. In one sense, it really is not death. That's why Paul calls death falling asleep in 1 Thessalonians 4. Believers do not die as unbelievers do. Rather, they fall asleep in the Lord. Their bodies appear dead, but their souls are alive with the Lord Jesus in heaven. They have eternal life. For Christians, death is not empty and meaningless. It's not hopeless. It serves a grand purpose, bringing us into the presence of God. Let's now consider for a few moments some of the things that come with that eternal life, things that we can look forward to after our death. And as we do that, let's do that to to stir up our hearts in anticipation of what God has in store for us. Considering these things and thinking about them, Spirit will also kindle in us a deeper understanding and passion for what really matters now in this life. So first of all, when we live on this earth, we don't really have a home, a spiritual home. Scripture says in 1 Peter 1 that we are strangers in the world. We are pilgrims and exiles, aliens. We don't really belong here. In Philippians 3.20, we read that our citizenship is in heaven. And so when we take our last breath, finally, we will arrive at our permanent dwelling. We will be in our homeland. Finally, we'll be in the presence of our God and we will live with Him forever. So that's the first thing, a permanent dwelling place. Second, we can look forward to joy unmixed with suffering. Joy unmixed with suffering. When we believe in the Lord Jesus on this earth, we have joy. Certainly we do. But it's mixed with suffering and and, and sadness. We face hurts and disappointments in this life. 
when we are called into eternal life, our joy will be complete. There will be no more frustration, no more sadness, no more hurt. Don't you look forward to that? I sure do. Believing in the Lord of life, you can and you will have it. Revelation 21, verse 4, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. In Revelation 22, verse 3, No longer will there be any curse. That's God's promise to you. And He will keep it. So the second thing is joy unmixed with suffering. Third, on this earth we face suffering for a little while. But after death we will have joy and peace forever. Psalm 16, verse 11, You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in Your presence with eternal pleasures at Your right hand. Eternal pleasures. David suffered in this life time and again, but he looked forward to eternal joy and peace in God's presence. And if he did that merely with faith in what was promised, how much more shouldn't we be able to do that with faith in the Christ who came in fulfillment of what was promised? Our suffering here is but for a little while. The glorious joy which waits for us will be forever. Next, we long for being at home with the Lord Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 5, 6-8, we read, Therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. While we are here, we are away from the Lord in a real and meaningful sense. That means that there is something incomplete in our present relationship with Him. Death changes that. Death takes us into more and deeper intimacy with Jesus. And so we long for the time when we will be at home with the Lord, when He will be with us forever as both our King and our friend. Fifth, while we live here, we face a fight. The Christian life on this earth is characterized in Scripture as warfare. Just think of Ephesians 6. There are other chapters as well and other verses, but Ephesians 6 is the one that always comes to mind. We have to fight against sin, the devil, the world, and what's usually the the hardest fight of all, our own flesh. Now we have a fight. And it wears on us. But the promise of Scripture is that the fight will give way to a feast in eternal life. Think of what it says in Revelation 19 where we read God's promises for the wedding feast of the Lamb. Eternal life will speed us on to that great and peaceful event, that joyous event in the age to come. And finally, 
we can look forward to complete deliverance from sin and perfect, absolute holiness. While we live in this life, we still have to contend with sin in our hearts and lives. There was a reason why the Lord Jesus taught His disciples to continually pray for the forgiveness of their sins. As long as they lived and as long as we live on this earth, sin is there and it drives us repeatedly to seek forgiveness in the precious blood of our Savior. But in the hereafter, such a prayer will no longer be relevant. The fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer will be obsolete after we take our last breath. Instead, we will be completely pure and holy in every sense, in principle and in practice, even as our Savior is. Now already we have a great salvation. But there's more to come. It gets better. All of these things are ours when we believe Christ died for us. We can have the comfort of knowing that Jesus Christ has a special place waiting for us in heaven. When we consider that and we chew it over in our hearts and minds, there's no reason to wonder about the meaning and purpose of death. There's no reason to be afraid either. If we are truly at peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, we can have comfort and peace when we reflect on death. Like the Apostle Paul and numerous other saints after him, you can know for sure that dying in Christ can only be a good thing for us. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, Your promises are so precious to us. Your Word stirs up our hearts and encourages us. And as we heard Your Word, our hearts are kindled with love for You. You give us so much in Christ our Lord. In Him, we have eternal life and all the benefits that go with that. We thank You that because of His payment, our death puts an end to sin and brings us into eternal life. Dear Father, we thank You for the Gospel. Help us all, every one of us, to believe it again this morning and each day, time and again. We pray that You would strengthen faith in all of us with Your Word and Spirit. We pray that each one of us would have the grace of Your Holy Spirit so that we would never doubt about the meaning and purpose of death, so that we would never fear death. Help us all, every single one, to look forward to the marriage feast of the Lamb and to live in an appropriate way today and every day. Lord God, have mercy upon us now and always. We pray in Christ, who conquered sin and death for us. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.